0: Welcome to Literary Friction on NTS. I'm Carrie Plitt, here as always with my co host, Octavia Bright. Hello, Octavia.
1: Hi, Carrie.
0: Today, in our typically overreaching fashion, we're tackling a large topic the short story. Revered by readers and overlooked by publishers, the short story is literature in a single shot, and the form has many masters, from Edgar Allan Poe to Lori Moore to Juno Diaz. And I noticed that I said all American writers there, but there are also international writers who are good at short stories as well. Um, We'll be talking today about what a short story actually is, how to write a good one, and who writes them best. Here in the studio today with us right now is a wonderful writer of short stories, Jesse Greengrass, whose debut collection, An Account of the Decline of the Great Ark According to One Who Saw It, was published last year by
1: John Murray Press. Octavia, can you introduce Jessie, please? Absolutely. Jessie Greengross was born in 1982, and she studied philosophy in Cambridge and London, where she now lives with her partner. Uh, she's a founder member of the Broutigan Free Press. And uh, her aforementioned debut collection has been really well received, winning the Edge Hill Short Story Prize in 2016. Um, And Jessie was also shortlisted for the Sunday Times PFD Young Writer of the Year Award in 2016. So many accolades and we're thrilled to have her with us.
0: Yes, we are very thrilled. Uh, So we'll be talking to Jessie about her collection. Then we'll be discussing the theme, short stories more generally. And finally, we're having Jessie back to give her book recommendation. So stay tuned to Literary Friction. So, Jesse, here you are. Thank you for coming in. Hi, thank you for having me. And uh, we've asked you to start with the reading, and I think you're going to read a whole story for us, which is very exciting.
2: Yeah, it's, it seems kind of slightly silly to come and only read half a story yes. when you've written <laughs> things that are short. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is The Lonesome Southern Trials of Nut the Whaler. It was, by his own reckoning, three and a half weeks past the summer solstice when Knut Knutson completed his dead man- men's shoes ascent through the ranks and finally made captain, the previous incumbent having given in at last to the malaise he'd suffered from since spring. As a result, Nutt's first task as captain-elect, even before considering the problem of his own solo investiture, was to arrange a funeral for his predecessor. This he did with all due reverence, settling on a sea burial for reasons both of taste and convenience, and paying some considerable attention to the details, in particular the location. Despite the length of the days in January this close to the pole, it still took Nut from dawn till near off dusk to carry the old captain's corpse from shelter from the shelter of the cove where he'd died to the southernmost of the island's many cliffs. A thousand foot fall looking out to where in spring the icebergs carved, shearing off the distant frozen continent into the landless tract of ocean that flowed, empty with the exception of the islands on which Nut stood from Invercargill to the Weddell Sea. Behind the cliff to the north, the archipelago's unscalable mountains rose, range on range, In considering the matter, Nutt had felt that this backdrop would lend a suitable gravitas to the occasion. This gravitas the deceased had earned not so much through rank, having after all presided over the chain of events which led them to make such irreversible landfall at this fearful place as through tenacious longevity, being with the exception of Nutt, the only one of the whaler's crew to have made it through even the first bitter month on the landmass Nutt had mentally christened Land. In the end, the solemn impression Noot hoped to create was spoiled, at least partially, by the penguin that insisted on coming along, following him at a steady distance of one and one-half yards, its monochrome uniform and waddling gait, combined with its occasional tendency to pause and succumb to fits of distraught sobbing, appearing to deliberately parody the funeral procession. The corpse lost something of its integrity, too, during the course of its final journey, since Noot's sense of occasion hadn't quite extended to using any of his precious metres of salvaged sailcloth for a shroud. And although Nut was a large man and broad across the shoulders, although the last ten months clubbing seals for meat and the wherewithal to make himself a new pair of trousers had hardened rather than weakened his already enviable musculature, still there had been parts of the journey where the difficulty of the terrain had made it expedient to drag the body by its feet, its head bouncing cheerfully across the scree. Finally, though, Nut reached his goal and laid the old captain's mortal remains on the edge of the cliff. He stood himself at the head, and the penguin shuffled round to stand by the feet, Nutt said what he could remember of the rite for burial at sea, and, after exhorting the penguin to pray for the soul of its departed brother, tipped the late Captain van der Nort over the cliff edge. As the body fell, committed now to the deep until such time as the oceans should give up their dead, the bird threw back its head, stretched out its wings, and gave a howl of such raw, wounded grief that Nut felt a death call rise in his own throat, the ululent lamentation of one soul for an extinguished other which is beyond reason, beyond thought or understanding, beyond words or speaking an ancient response to unmendable death at the cold, hard edges of the world. Afterwards, when they composed themselves, Nut and the penguin sat side by side and shared a piece of salted cod. Nut tried to think of some nice things to say about Captain van der Nort, wake-appropriate reminiscences he could share with the penguin, but he found his mind wandering. Now that the burial was over, Nut faced the problem of his formal promotion to captain, a traditionally mandated ceremonial occasion which, even pared down to its fundamentals, required a witness. That he should fail to perform it was for Noot unthinkable. To be a captain, even such a lonely one as this, and even so achieved, was the fulfilment of a dream he had first suffered at his mother's knee while waiting for his father to come in off the scryboats. Also, despite, despite the fact that there was now no crew and no boat but the portion of hull he had washed in on and no course or command, Nut felt that to have no captain either would be a step too far, would be to abandon himself and the remnants of his voyage to the abyss To accept that he was, in truth, no longer a sailor, but instead a land-bound hermit liable to die here, on this rock, 120 degrees of latitude from where he had been born. While the penguin might have performed duty as witness, it seemed one thing too many to ask of the bird, besides which, after its restorative bit of cod, it had wandered off, and nut-lacked the heart to follow. He considered walking back the way he'd come and approaching one of the seals that dragged themselves up at this time of year to rest on the shingle in front of his camp. But having a creature ratify his oath which afterwards he might attempt to eat seemed to Nut poor form. Instead, he set off directly north, inland across the tundra that covered all of land that wasn't shingle, above 3,000 feet or steeper than one in three. It was hard going, scrubby and uneven, and Nut walked slowly, slower still as he approached the place he was looking for, scanning the ground as he walked in case he overshot, but in the end, it was easy to find the nest where the pair of wandering albatross presided, their eggs somewhere beneath them. Nut stood in front of them and bowed, first to one and then the other. In apparent response, the male bird stepped forward and, holding himself erect, stretched his wings to their full extent. They unfolded like jackknives, twice as wide as Nut was tall and cleanly curved and sharp and narrow, the most perfect things that Nut in all his travels had ever seen. He knelt, feeling himself humbled, reminded of his position vis-à-vis the ocean, his subjection to the higher law of current and wind and tide, his duty to serve and steer. The albatross settled himself back beside his consort and smiled with regal condescension as Nut took his oath proudly and with dignity, keeping from his voice until the end the catch of emotion which threatened to disturb it. And For a long time afterwards he stayed there, kneeling, praying for his captaincy, for good judgement and good luck, for strength of purpose and surety of course, and feeling all the time a glowing pride, a growing pride at his achievement, at such advancement as he never would have thought within his reach. Later, returning to the stretch of Undercliff that had become his home, Captain Knuttson climbed up on the wreck of his Dominion and sat for a bit, chewing distractedly on some dried seal meat. Sometimes, sitting like this, he thought he could see a boat far off. Another whaler, maybe, following the migration trails down towards the polar continent, and all souls within her, cold as he was and as far from home. But whether these were really boats he saw, or only icebergs or imagination, was irresolvable, and this irresolvability made the question moot. After a while, he climbed down and huddled himself into the shelter of the splintered keel and went to sleep. Above him, in the thin glow of the summer night, the larger of the two albatross took flight, heading out across the breakers and the spume, coasting on the westerlies against the world's spin, across the endless ice fields of the empty Southern Ocean to the Cape of Good Hope. And there, Captain Nutson left the bird and joined the Benguela Current running north with the trades, away from Africa and into the mid-Atlantic's warmer waters to be swept across the equator near Brazil. And from there, still further north, along the coast of South America and over the Tropic of Cancer to the Caribbean Sea, where at last the Gulf Stream took caught him and it took him home.
0: Thank you, Jesse. I have chills. <laughs> um, I think that is uh, that story is a very good example of your writing. First of all, the, the sort of clause upon clause that um, you sometimes are able to pull off sort of pyrotechnically, I thought, but also um, it has a lot of similar, it has some of the concerns that a lot of your stories have. So loneliness, um, the human mind, uh, places at the edge of the world or at the edge of wilderness. and I. I was just wondering, I I know you've said in previous interviews that you didn't mean to write a short story collection, but these themes keep cropping up. um, And I wonder if that's just one of your occupations as a writer's or if it's something that you wanted to write about and you were sort of fixated on as you were writing.
2: Um, I think it's probably a bit of both. Um, I mean, I think it's kind of something that... Those are kind of things that have preoccupied me. And I think that the time... like I wrote these stories in a relatively short space of time I think so um and at the time I sort of wasn't sure what I was doing and I wasn't sure if I was a writer or not and I wasn't kind of sure of anything and so I think that bled into them a little bit that was kind of feeling of being sort of dislocated from myself but so that kind of emotional content I think kind of crops up again and again um but also kind of intellectually I'm quite interested in sort of theories of mind and um the sort of individuality is something which can be um, as isolating as it can be um, profound, I think. You know, like this kind of feeling that you are stuck inside your own mind and trying to bridge, trying to find a, a way to build a bridge out of it to make a connection with somebody else is sort of difficult. Do
1: you think your um, your background in philosophy has influenced your concerns in your writing?
2: Um. Yes, like, I think it kind of clearly has. But then I think that the reason that I studied philosophy in the first place was probably that that those were concerns that I sort of had and and philosophy felt like a way of kind of addressing them. So I don't know, it's a bit kind of chicken and egg, really. (laughs) I think I probably wouldn't have studied it in the first place if I hadn't been slightly kind of odd. (laughs) (laughs) Odd is the best. We like odd. (laughs) And um, speaking
0: of the human mind, you know, so, so many of these stories are delving into the way we think and the way we interact with the outside world and the way we interact with ourselves. And yet um, many of the characters, I, I, this story is an exception, actually, don't have a gender, often don't have a name. Um, and we don't really learn that much about them besides how they think. Um, and I, was that deliberate or does it just have to do with the way that you think about people?
2: Um, no, I think it was de- it was deliberate, and it became more deliberate. Um, what I wanted was to kind of strip away all of those things, which kind of are peripheral, and get to the way that people think about themselves, which is not often in in those terms. Or those terms are kind of overlaid on this on the sort of narrative that is the kind of constant stream of yourself. And I sort of had an idea of people trying to give an account of themselves, their kind of motivation and their thought, and, and sort of why they did things. That they, and they don't even really understand necessarily why they did them. Um, but in giving those accounts, uh, you would—I don't think you would say, "This is my name, and I'm—I'm um, a woman, and I—you know—I do." You know, you you just talk about you just talk about yourself, and and in, in doing that, I think yeah, like those things do kind of fall away a little bit. I think those are the sort of drivers of plot seen as something kind of external, but a kind of internal driver. Um, they become less necessary. I, I thought a lot about him and I've read a lot of Beckett. Beckett is one of my sort of long-term fa- favourite writers, um, which makes me sound dreadful. <laughs> um, yeah, he's quite good. But, yeah, <laughs> he's pretty good. Um, and I, this is not in any way to say that I'm in any way that like Beckett, but he manages to do that kind of really, really incredibly well. And I thought a lot about kind of the way that plays like not I have a kind of character on stage just sort of talking into space and that that image kind of recurred a lot i think well what's wonderful about that is you leave your reader the space to learn
1: something about their own assumptions and prejudices as well like the opening story um which gives the collection its title you know i found myself assuming that that voice was masculine because it was about you know the rape and pillage of land and kind of atrocity and there's nothing to suggest that that it is actually within the story itself um, and I found that interesting when I had that moment with myself of like, oh, hold on, Octavia, you're being a bit of a, you know, having some uh, ideas about that. Um, I wanted to ask you about that about that story actually. I found it really disturbing in a in an incredibly subtle way. It's I don't the know the
0: decline of the great orc, which Thank is you. the um, title story. Of the
1: the title story and the orc is this. Are they really extinct? I don't know.
2: But th- they are. Yeah. I mean, like, th- I um, the story. I, I always feel a little bit. Kind of strange about because it is the one that people kind of talk about the most, um, and I and it, it is kind of immediately shocking. But it, like literally, all I did was write what happened. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. From the side, so I kind of don't feel like I did it all that much. Work. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but you brought it to the surface, and it's something that feels at this moment in time where politics is so messy and things are so kind of bad in some ways. To have that in, um, immediacy of just a, it's like a perfect example, isn't it, of, of how human beings can completely screw something up
2: basically. yeah and, w- and without i mean i think that like without knowing about it like i think the, the kind of did like reading accounts like actual accounts of um the the extinction of the Orc, like this kind of ability that people had to kind of delude themselves um as like you know in the course of sort of decades like decades less than that um the, this population became extinct um
0: one of the things i really liked about that story was it felt kind of like Moby Dick in miniature or something it was it was a real study in economy um telling this really large story that has so many things to say about the human condition and the natural world um in very very few pages and I wanted to ask you a little bit about your actual experience writing it was it something where you wrote a lot and had to cut it down or did it come out more fully formed than that
2: um that story I think is a bit of an exception um because i so my normal writing method is to write a huge amount and then just cut it and cut it and cut it and cut it until i can't cut anything else um but i think because that one had a kind of plot imposed by the sort of like by by actual kind of events and it was like really a recounting um what had happened i didn't do as much of that um as i would normally do i think there were there were certainly kind of events that i wanted to put in there that didn't have space so there was a bit of kind of cutting but i didn't do as much editing i think as i normally would Mm. and the cutting
0: what what goes through your mind when you're cutting is it all about finding the exact right word or phrasing for things do you move clauses and sentences
2: around Um, um yeah that's that's part of it um and I you know, it, part of it is there's something very specific and precise that I want to say and I can't quite say it, so I'll just write it. And I'll just say it fifteen times and then hopefully kind of I'll be able to cut that into into one like sort of decent way of saying it. Um, but lots of it is kind of not really knowing what's pertinent um of kind of the thoughts that I have about a character or about a kind of situation and so just writing and writing and writing. And then kind of thinking what the argument is like what what the point is that i'm trying to make and anything that's extraneous to that and i think this is something that you can do specifically with short stories that that writing novel and kind of longer form you don't have quite the same concern but cut cutting anything that isn't relevant like just it has to go there's no space for kind of digression um until you just have this kind of line of argument that takes you from the beginning to the end
1: yeah, I think that, that really, that's one of the joys of reading, what, what I found one of the joys of reading this collection was just the, the, it felt like being guided by an incredibly steady and deliberate hand, which is a joy as a reader, you know, to just hand yourself over like that. And and this might sound like a strange compliment, but you have such a good grasp on grammar. <laughs> and it really, like, it really reminded me of the power of that, you know, of being able to change the emphasis in a sentence by moving the moving parts around and you know the many different ways you can say one thing and how that changes the 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 kind of meaning um no i i just i wanted to give you that compliment on the radio because i, I honestly <laughs> and it made me think, it made me want to say to everybody pay attention in your grammar classes when you're at school because there's so much that i've forgotten you know and it when you read really tight writing like that it's a bit like i find graham green's writing like that mm. as well incredibly tight and precise, um, and the precision is that there are no extraneous words there's a minimum minimal use of and the but etc all of those of the blah 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 so i don't even know what you call those
2: (laughs) i I don't know either conjunctions (laughs) Conjunctions. there we go
1: (laughs) do do you feel
0: that you are a master of grammar
2: um not not particularly i feel like i've read a lot and that and that all of that kind of like that every time i read something else like a little bit of that kind of ability of different people it's kind of something that I try and kind of pick up or store away. And so out of that kind of great kind of amalgamation, I think you, you get your own voice. That's how I think that's how it comes mostly.
1: And who would you say your your literary influences or your favourite writers are?
2: I do, I I find this question really difficult. It is, just, it's a horrible I, <laughs> question. <laughs> there's just, I mean, there's just so many and it's really sort of varied, you know, through... I mean, I've I've been reading sort of literary fiction or poetry or literature for 20 years and, um, and it's been variable. I mean, there are writers that I come back to again and again who are people like Larkin, John Donne, Beckett, I said. Um, and then sort of p- there's kind of peculiar English novels from sort of the kind of early to mid-20th century that I read quite often, um, like C.P. Snow, who is... No, nobody, no, nobody, no, nobody, no, nobody, no, nobody reads C. P. Snow anymore. But they're they're just kind of, they're not, they're not extraordinary, but they are kind of very honestly felt and sort of workmanlike. And I kind of like that sort of writing as a kind of craft. I really admire. I think um, so. Yeah. I mean, but then I, I just I just I just you know like I mean it, it, people read habitually, and that's that's what I've always done. So. Mm let's talk more about short stories
0: because that is the theme of our show and um you've published a collection (laughs) of short stories so can you talk about how you came to the form is this something that you find easier to write or was it the way you started writing um
2: i i i didn't intend to write short stories i didn't really intend to write anything at all um but then i kind of thought well i mean you've got to write write a novel really haven't you um so i'd sort of sit down and i'd keep thinking i'm definitely gonna write i think really long this time and then i'd just and i'd write loads and then i would just cut it and before i knew it it was like 600 words long (laughs) 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 um but i so and and also there's something kind of like i i find as a writer kind of quite immediately satisfying about short stories because you do go through that kind of like the process of sort of profound doubt about whether what you're doing is completely hopeless to the satisfaction of having finished something in in a, in the course of a couple of months as opposed to like potentially years so that that felt in the absence of um any like in the absence of anyone to show my work to and in the absence of kind of the support of a publishing house and an agent and all of those wonderful people who were really nice to me, um, <laughs> it, it felt like I needed that kind of, um, quite. I needed to, I needed a sign of progress. I needed to not be sitting in a room kind of doing, working on something indefinitely. As someone who's doing that right now,
1: I completely <laughs> understand. Um, do you feel like you've cut your teeth as a writer then in this collection and you feel ready to tackle different things do you think you'll continue to write
2: short stories as well as longer form fiction i mean i definitely think that i will that i I really enjoy writing short stories so i'm not going to stop doing it but i it's not the only thing that i want to do um and i think finding a way to write something longer that isn't exactly and i mean so i think that a lot of the things that i did in the short story collection don't translate well into long form fiction really i think a lot of the voices are quite W- a fine over kind of seven or eight pages but would be really irritating <laughs> <laughs> over the course of a they're novel pretty miserable a lot of <clears throat> and, miserable and they are a lot of miserable people yeah. and I, I don't think you can sustain that level of misery over um whole over book either um without becoming quite tedious so um <laughs> so kind of finding something more complicated and i don't know if maybe part of that was just needing to change like needing my li- needing to grow up a little bit needing my life to kind of change a little bit so i had more to talk about um but yeah so finding a way of writing um something longer has been um a a challenge and an interesting process um but yeah i'm not going to stop writing short stories good
0: (laughs) you say over a couple of months um does it usually take you a couple of months to write a story
2: um variable some of them took a really long time um but normally yeah six or seven weeks i think um I think I, I yeah I don't I mean I feel like I'm writing quicker now to an extent but then I'm not writing short stories so maybe I yeah but yeah. I think probably are you ever like.
0: working on more than one at once no. or is it
2: no because okay. I just stop writing uh, the only reason I'd start another one is if I didn't really want to finish the one before so there have been there have been ones that have kind of languished a bit that I've kind of had an idea and I've started writing and um it hasn't worked and I've written something else and then gone back to it but it's been very much like gone back to the idea and not the writing so I'd start again yeah. like a serial monogamist with your, with yeah. your stories
1: <laughs> <laughs> you said you needed to grow up What? how do you think you've
0: grown up since writing this collection
2: Um. well I, you know, the, the, per, per, I mean I I know this is quite difficult I, I, yeah maybe that's not a great way of putting it but um, I think I've become much ha- happier, which is part of it. Like I was um, quite unhappy when I wrote it and quite uncertain of things. And I had quite a kind of narrow realm of existence and I didn't sort of do very much and I'd would uh, been quite depressed for quite a long time. Um, and now I've got... Um, but I also had quite a lot of time, which I think is a peculiar double-edged sword. Um, and now uh, I've got a partner and a child and... A lot to do and not very much time which kind of forces a sort of slightly different outlook like much less introspection and much mm-hmm. more getting on with things um but i think it like in just in general i sort of feel like i've got more more to talk about i think yeah sometimes also
1: it's getting the first stuff out that makes space for maybe slightly more complicated I don't know structures and things I think a lot of writers find that they need to they need to write the first thing whether that's a poetry collection short (coughs) stories novel and then suddenly there's a a kind of a pressure alleviates or something internally that's to do with knowing that you can do it and knowing that you can finish it.
2: Yeah absolutely but I think also um, exactly that but kind of there's something that you've got to say that is sort of the given thing and once you've said it and it sort of comes easily, rather you can't just repeat it over and over again. You have to, you have to well, sort of seek. Well, some writers do, sadly. Well, but yes. but um, you have to kind of seek for something else to say, and that does mean something that's possibly a, a bit more sort of nuanced and a bit more complicated.
0: Yeah, although I found this collection incredibly nuanced and complicated, and also really wide-ranging. You know, you go from uh, sailors killing the great auk all the way up to winter twenty. 58 58 um, <laughs> um and <coughs> uh, you know you have you've imagined even though a lot of these are internal um you're really you've imagined very different people in very very different times yeah um, and then the
1: story that about the character in a who's just doing tele sales basically which speaks to me and i know would speak to any of my friends who have done that job uh periodically as students you know the misery of it sorry i interrupted you Carrie. carry on no, it's okay. I was <laughs> I just um I'm I'm interested
0: that uh, that you ranged so widely in terms of your settings and your characters. Um and you know, were you ever nervous about that, I guess?
2: Um no, but then that's part, I mean, I guess so. that's the, the kind of flip side of not having any idea of ever having it published is that you, you can just write whatever you want, like, you know. So what I did was um, some friends and I did a zine um, sort of every six or seven weeks and we'd, um, we'd go on a, on a day trip. We'd plan the day trip ahead and we'd be like, right, we're going to do a zine to go with this day trip and we'd think of a theme that sort of went loosely with the day trip and then we'd all write something. And so it, it would be different every time because it would be, you know you'd, you'd, this week it would be boating and next week it would be nuclear bunkers um and and um yeah and that and so that was how a lot of these stories got written is this kind of a way of sort of self-publishing and a way of having some people to show something to and a way of having an imposed deadline but it did it did bring a freedom because i was i wasn't thinking god i'm gonna have to try and show these to a publisher i was just thinking i got to do something this six weeks
1: <laughs> that's such a great idea though that the idea of having a multiplicity of voices tied to one experience. It must have been really fascinating to see where all of your minds went with that.
2: Yeah, it was great, and I mean, a lot of the people that I was doing it with were sort of coming out of a background of art writing rather than kind of literature, and I think that that that's very different, and that I find that really that sort of discipline much like very interesting. And um it seems that, that I felt quite sort of dull by comparison, so it's sort of odd to now. Um, have people say i i mean so which sometimes people do say that it's sort of that the the work that i've done feels kind of new or adventurous or something um because i I always felt like the incredibly dull one (laughs) maybe it's adventurous to be dull maybe yeah yeah.
1: well but also it's (laughs) that wonderful thing about the the kind of um when you are in a collaborative thinking space like that with people they their effect rubs off on you maybe part of the reason your work stands out is to do with the fact that you were growing as a writer around people who were coming from an unusual place as well you know i don't know it's, it's an interesting thought
2: i, th- I also like. i r- would recommend it as a way of getting worked on yeah um, definitely yeah. great uh jesse greengrass thank you so much
0: thank for you. coming on today it's been a total pleasure um the book is called I'm going to read it out because I know I'll <laughs> mess it up otherwise. An account of the decline of the Great Oak, according to one who saw it. It's John Murray original. It's in stores now.
1: It's also a beautiful edition. Yes. So get it, get it. Yeah. Thank
2: you. <laughs>
0: Okay, this is Literary Friction. We are back, Carrie and Octavia doing our thing, talking about the theme, which is short stories. So, Octavia, what is a short story?
1: Oh, you're such a bitch. (laughs) (laughs) That's not... (laughs) No. um, No, no, no. I'll I'll take it on. I will take it on. A short story is a piece of literature that is short. Discuss.
0: Good. Yes. Oh, throwing, throwing it back in my court. Okay. Well, having done a, a little bit of research about this. Um, just, a, just a smidge. Nobody knows what a short story is. So I think you're right to to define it with such a broad brush. Um, there are a couple of uh, cool short story writers who have, have tried to come up with definitions for this. So Edgar Allan Poe famously argued in his 1846 essay, Thomas Le... <laughs> <laughs> I
1: can't even, let me see that written down. That. Thomas Le Moigneux. Moigneux, yeah.
0: Uh, that, uh, that, God, I've never even a heard short of story is just something that you can read in one sitting.
1: That's an interesting proposition because I don't always read short stories in one sitting.
0: Yes, and also I've read many a uh, novella in one sitting that you probably wouldn't <laughs> <I call> read <laughs> many a novella.
1: No, but that made me think of Pyrenee because Pyrenee Press, their whole thing is that you can sit down and read their novellas in one sitting and they're yeah. definitely not short stories.
0: Yeah, um, so we'll, we'll put that on the shelf. Um, I really like the idea put forward by um, the American writer Eudora Welty, who, who has written many short stories, that a short story should be one mood um Mm, that's an interesting although i think you can also break this rule and still write a good short story so she she said a short story is confined to one mood to which everything in the story pertains character setting time events are all subject to the mood and you can try more ephemeral more fleeting things in a story you can work more by suggestion than in a novel less is resolved more is suggested i like that idea
1: i like that idea too you know the, the interesting thing about resolution though because I personally, I I like short stories that are completely unresolved and are more like vignettes, you know, more just like a a window into a particular world for a moment or two and then you're out. And there isn't a beginning, a middle and an end. It's more just a snapshot. Um, But I know lots of people who find that immensely frustrating and people who enjoy novels that are very much structured around a plot and a beginning middle and end are looking for the same thing in their short stories and you can find writers who'll give you both i mean one of my favorite short story writers is um borges and Borges's stories are not about resolution at all at all at all um but then you think of somebody like um oh john updike mm. whose writing is you know it's or not fitzgerald or fitzgerald maybe. exactly it's not that it's Uh, It's not that it tells you how to think about it or what to feel, but there's a very tight structure. And each story is a universe that closes itself off at the end of it um, and releases you from it. Yeah, and I would say I'm probably
0: more partial to that kind of short story. I like narrative. Um, Although I like Borges as well.
1: You like (laughs) Borges. Hey,
0: andale, chiquita. (laughs) Um, another, uh, Another writer who's written, I mean, I think over the years many writers have tried to define what a short story is but i i also liked um annie prue who compared it a short story to sorry compared a short story writer to a cabinet maker and a novelist to a house carpenter mm. so it's still in the
1: house so it's still in the house <laughs> <laughs> but um <laughs>
0: I'm really giddy today i know i'm a bit on. giddy
1: i had a coffee in <laughs> okay so no, but i wanted to say something about that actually yes. because one of the things that um We mentioned with Jesse, actually not when we were recording, which is annoying of us, but um, about the difference between novelists and short story writers and how some writers feel very territorially one or the other and that there's, you know, a sense of almost betrayal if you start in short stories and then you step into long-form fiction and all that kind of stuff. Um, And I I think it's interesting because there are definitely writers who can do both and there are definitely writers who can't do both and don't try. Um, Yeah, it's... It's interesting that, uh, you know, as we regularly conclude on the show,
0: labels are stupid and don't tell us much. And, um, you know, what is a short story isn't really anything besides something that we've tried to categorize and sell. Um, Well, actually, people might argue about that, but that's probably how I feel. But I do think, you know, you need to talk about it because the way that publishing works means that we make a distinction between the two things. And and short stories, especially in this country, really get the short shrift. I mean, there... It's so interesting. I I know I've been talking about George Saunders lately, but I think it's a really good example. Is he is a master short story writer, American. He's been writing short stories for years, never written a novel, and he's just about to publish a novel, Lincoln in the Bardo, which, you know, I don't even know if you would call it a novel, but it's been pitched as the long-awaited novel, as though all short stories are somehow you have to graduate to yeah. writing a novel. Um and you know part of that is that it's just really hard to sell short story collections and we can talk about how we feel about collections but it it feels unfair doesn't it
1: yeah it feels totally unfair but I think it's I think also if you think about what the novel is designed to do the novel the novel was initially designed to be something that you could take up your leisure time with you know it was a pastime reading a novel was a pastime what is reading a short story is it uh like a like having a, sh- a shot of coffee like it, what 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 function is it supposed to perform because novels you know the idea is you get lost in a, in a narrative universe and you get transported and short stories you know i i think it's interesting to think of them in terms of how people spend time these days and what they do and how they read and and um one of the things that's amazing about you know publishing in america is you've got publications like the new yorker who publish a short story every edition alongside completely different kinds of writing because there never seems to be question over you know when are you going to read long form journalism or when are you going to read interviews and yet the short story has this question mark around it all the time and i don't i don't really understand that because i don't i don't get it like what's the what is the issue do you, do you know what do you think the issue is
0: I don't know. It's because people like to economize what they're doing. They like to put use and work to it. Mm. Um, Maybe this short story defies that a bit. Mm. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I think it's a really good question. I like the way you've put it in terms of our time.
1: Oh, thanks, babe. I
0: mean, (laughs) for me, me, a measure of a good short story is something that I can quickly be immersed in. Um, I feel like I have less time... In novels, I, I, I will often give a novel time to let me into its world. Um, but I'm, I'm much more brutal with short stories mm, if it doesn't immediately grip me. Um, and also I want to feel, it, getting back to that question of mood, and I know this is just very personal to me, but I want to feel somehow changed or shocked or surprised by it. I want to come out of it feeling slightly different than I did before I went into it. That's um, really interesting. And, and for me, it's this sort of
1: emotional hit. So um, you want like a level of intensity
0: that yeah. in a novel
1: would be maybe exhausting if it was maintained the whole time.
0: Yeah, and not it doesn't have to be intensity in the sense that it's highly emotional or highly fraught or pacey in any way. But um,
1: yeah, I want it to affect something in me. So that's interesting because I was thinking a lot about the Latin American short story tradition Um which is which is fascinating and actually comes down the reason the Latin American short story tradition is fascinating is that it exists at the cross currents between European and native culture when they, the way that they met, um, back in the olden days. And uh, what's interesting about that is that in a lot of the indigenous cultures they were it was coming down the chain of myth and oral tradition and stories that were told like to essentially build communities and things. So the the nugget at the heart of these storytelling experiences was usually something to do with, if not morality, like behavior. It was instructive, basically. Um, and that comes in very much to the writing of people like Julio Cotassar, Borges, Alejo Carpentier. Um, oh, wow, I said that in a French accent. Anyway, there's kind of a... Often there's a, a political charge as well as um, magical realism or surrealist or poetic realities. But they're much less about, uh, like, an emotional mood than than other things. So it's kind of interesting to me that I think if you read, you know, Borges' stories, they won't do that to you. They open but, your mind philosophically.
0: Yeah, but I guess for me, that's one version of feeling changed is mm. to, to be confronted with the question in a different way. I think Jesse's stories do that too. I mean, they, they are partially about isolation, but they make you think about how people interact with the world. Um, and for me, that's just as valid if it's done well, and if it's transfixing as um, something that seems emotionally true. Mm, I don't know I think I think um, we make too big a distinction between the cerebral and the emotional sometimes I can when actually they're very they're, they're very connected
1: they are connected I wanted to talk very quickly about one of my favorite short story writers from when I was a kid called Paul Jenning, Paul Jennings who's an Australian writer um, and his stories are they are kind of horror um shock value kind of thing so very different they're not really philosophical so much as like but they leave you feeling very unsettled Mm. they're spooky um and they actually ended up being a lot of them were made into um round the twist episodes around the twist which was this great surreal weird australian children's um young adult kind of tv program but that i was thinking about jennings and thinking god i haven't read anything like that for a really long time that's sort of. Stuff that gets classified as young adult, but actually, I guess like Roald Dahl. I guess he's like a Roald Dahl for the 90s. Um, God, I
0: haven't heard of him.
1: He's fabulous. He's really fabulous. And Round the Twist is absolutely brilliant. If you can find it on YouTube, it's a really great, weird-ass show. Mm.
0: Okay, so before we give our favorite short stories ever, um, I just wanted to briefly ask you also about collections. Because I think it's, a, it's an interesting thing, isn't it? For me, I'm going to admit... Maybe I shouldn't admit this, but I don't read that many short stories. Oh now. my god! I read them a lot when I was a student, and when I was concerning myself more with high literature. What's happened to you? No, I mean I. am still concerned. Maybe I should let's cut that out. Um, I'm I, th- I don't. So much. I. I'll pick up a New Yorker. I read. Um. I read journals now for my job partially looking for writers but I don't often buy collections of short stories. And part of the reason for that is because I think collections are are a weird form for short stories and seem to me something that's been cooked up by the industry to make selling short stories something that you can do in a shop rather than something unless unless stories are interconnected, I actually find it really annoying to have to start over and over and over and over again. It's hard to immerse yourself in a world. And you have to give a lot of yourself and a lot of your mind and to have to do that again and again and again. um, You know, even if a writer is is fairly consistent in their voice, which is not really what you want anyway, it's quite difficult.
1: Yeah, I think uh, I agree. I I don't really enjoy sitting down and reading a whole short story collection if I have that kind of time. I'll read a novel and I tend to pick when I'm reading short stories. It tends to be related to how much time I have. But also, actually, I would say the way I get my short stories these days is almost all audio on the New Yorker Fiction Podcast, which I just think is the most phenomenal resource for anyone who loves reading and loves writing because you have the, the format is... Um, writers who had their short stories published in the New Yorker have access to the whole archive. I've talked about this on the show before. Anyway, they get to pick something, they read it, and then they discuss with Deborah Treisman, the editor, the story afterwards. Um, and it's amazing because it it really, it's very broad-ranging. For me, as a British reader and writer, it's opened my eyes to a whole world of American writing that otherwise wouldn't have come across my path. That's where I first met people like Updike and um, Juno Diaz and stuff like that, um, yeah. And we're both very inspired by Deborah Treisman. Deborah. she's our
0: uh, password for social media is related to that. <laughs> you gonna give it out? <laughs> I won't give away the whole away. It's an homage thing. to Deborah Treisman. Yeah. So yeah, I I would also very 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 highly recommend the New Yorker Fiction podcast. So Octavia, who is your favorite short story writer? Oh
2: my god! Or, I can't. Or,
0: g- le- yeah, I know. That's a stupid question. What short story would you like to recommend? Today? Okay,
1: so I thought about this a lot because there are many writers and many stories that are really important to me, but I'm going for a, a kind of classic, which is one that I came across in on the New Yorker Fiction Podcast and then I went and read it um, in text as well. It's by John Cheever called The Swimmer. It was published in the New Yorker in 1964 and it had such a big impact on me when I, when I heard it. Um, it's Oh, I don't know. I think it's kind of a perfect example of the of the possible reach of a short story. Um, it's. Uh, I think about it. Yeah, I think about it whenever I'm writing as well, actually, because again, a bit like Jesse's writing, the economy of language is really really spectacular and really stands out. Um, but what's fascinating about it is that actually Cheever originally conceived of the story as a novel, and um, he wrote hundreds of pages and then realised he needed to distill it and edit it and cut it back. And I love that because it really shows a writer allowing a story to be told the way it wants to be told rather than imposing a, a structural idea on it before he starts. Like, I'm going to write a novel. It's like, no, I'm going to tell a story and I'm going to see how it comes out best. Um, and I think also the fact that he did so much writing around it, you can tell really in the kind of clever richness of its um, story. Uh it's surreal. It has a real sting in its tail. Um, I'm not going to give away the sting because it's um, you should experience it for yourself. But it's it's a story about a character called Neddy Merrill, who, when it opens, he's lounging by a pool at a friend's house in this obviously quite wealthy suburban place in America, and he decides on a whim to get home by swimming across all of the pools in the county. So it, you have this image of these you know American houses. Uh, standalone houses with their swimming pools or connecting the back gardens and blah 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 Um, and he decides to name this watery path the Lucinda River after his wife and off he goes and he's really enthusiastic and and initially he's greeted by all of these neighbours and friends in their swimming trunks with their martinis and everyone's really pleased to see him and he swims the length of their pool and gets out and goes on and then it starts to take on this darker and darker energy and, and you are, and you end up deposited in a completely different place from where you started and it has quite a devastating effect. Um, and there's something very Gatsby-esque about it and actually his writing does remind me of Fitzgerald a bit. Um, but yeah, it's amazing. It's very rich and very complex. But actually, when you step back from it, it's a really, really simple tale. Um, and I would really recommend actually finding in the New Yorker Fiction Podcast Archive And listening to it. I can't remember who the writer was who chose it and read it, but the discussion that they have with Deborah Treesman afterwards is spot on.
0: Mm. It's a good story. Do you know, weirdly, I've read it a few times and I can't actually remember what happens at the end. I remember fascinating. I remember the the story so vividly, but I can't remember what the sort of the the
1: emotional charge is. Wow, girl. That's so interesting. What does that say about me? um Octavia. we'll talk about it okay. when we're not on air <laughs> um
0: okay so i am also recommending an american writer that's okay and it's also kind of a classic american that's writer, okay. uh, writing around the same time as Cheever.
1: Oh. what's happened to us
0: <laughs> i don't know i don't know um it's also one of my favorite periods in American literature. So Some good stuff came why, out yeah. of that period. Yes, that is yes. true. So uh, I will spare you the suspense. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to recommend the story Good Country People by Flannery O'Connor, um, which was published in a collection called A Good Man is Hard to Find in 1955. Flannery O'Connor is... Uh, she's from the American South in Georgia. She's a famous recluse. She's also a devout Catholic her whole life. So this very fascinating other, really, um, uh, whose stories are just infused with gothic weirdness and Catholicism and darkness. I'm stunned by her stories when I read them um, because they're so different. They're so original and also so dark. um, And I really like them. And also, I seem to be very attracted to Catholic writers. I don't know what that means, but I think there's something about that worldview that really intrigues me. Um, I shouldn't say anymore at risk of offending all Catholic people, but (laughs) anyway, yes. Um, So Good Country People is about Mrs. Hopewell, who's a devout woman who owns a farm in rural Georgia rural georgia do that again babes rural (laughs) georgia (laughs) um and her daughter joy an atheist who has changed her name to holga despite her mother so it's quite funny actually um so a bible salesman shows up at their door and asks holga out on a date and she agrees sort of despite her mother but things go darkly after that again i won't spoil it um but it's I think it's a really great example of the mood that we were talking about. Um, it's such a strikingly original voice, and and says so much about the human condition, God, redemption, who people are, and who people say they are, and the sometimes very wide gulf between those two things, um, and mis and the miscalculations we make every day. And it's it, it's it, it's very well
1: done. I've never read it, and I definitely will now. It sounds fabulous. Yeah, I would check it out.
0: This is Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt, back with Octavia Bright and also with Jessie Greengrass, our lovely author guest, who is here to give her recommendations. So
1: I think, Octavia, do you want to start? Sure thing. Um, So right now I'm reading an amazing little book called Hope in the Dark by Rebecca Solnit. It's nonfiction and the subtitle is Untold Histories, Wild Possibilities. And she's a writer who I absolutely love and actually whose career I'm really envious of. She manages to be a kind of journalistic, philosophical Voice quite poetic, um, who writes about all kinds of things. But this book is really important right now. Um, it was first published in 2005, but they reissued it last year. Um, Canongate published it. And initially, it was an essay that Solnit published online just after the USA launched its war in Iraq. And it was a, a an impassioned call for resistance and hope. Um, and it went viral. And so she expanded on it and, and wrote, this little book which is yeah it's it's a, it's a slip of a thing and it's it's so worth reading um it's a treatise that makes the case for hope in the midst of completely hopeless times and the forwards uh, that she wrote for the 2015 edition is actually called grounds for hope and it basically sets out why hope is important and why we mustn't let you know complete apathy which is what happens to a lot of people when they are experiencing a state of fear, you know, they become numb and they feel uh, unempowered, disempowered. Um, She's a beautiful writer, really forceful, but not at all patronising. And she has this wonderfully rousing way of using language that's a real kind of call to arms without being moralistic or duty-bound in any way i think she's she's quite a remarkable person um I just want to read you this tiny sentence from the afterword of this edition she writes we're all activists in some way or another because our actions and our inactions have impact um and i think that's really important right now in this week that donald bloody trump is about to become uh, president so read it it's a denouncement of defeatist and dismissive attitudes And it is inspiring and it is comforting. And I feel like um, it should land on everyone's doormat in the morning on the 20th. (laughs) That
0: sounds great. I've really been... You would love it, actually. I've been turning to writers a lot in this past week, trying to get some explanation for what's happening in the world. And and find hope. So I think that's a great recommendation. Everyone was posting... That made me think of... um, Everyone was posting quotes from Martin Luther King because it was just Martin Luther King Day uh, yesterday. We're recording on a Tuesday. It what is day it? is it? It's a Tuesday. Yeah. It's a Tuesday. Um, <laughs> um, and I think, you know, it, it's heartening to know that people have been through these struggles and gotten through and, and partially through visionaries like like Martin Luther King or, or Solnit. In his letter, I, I just wrote a little quote from... Um, Letter from a Birmingham Jail. I must uh, confess that over the past few years, I have been gravely disappointed with the white water moderate. I've always reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in his stride towards freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klaner, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I thought that was so right. Um, I go goosebumps. And so pertinent, right? So anyway, we're on a tangent. Yes, sonnet, sonnet for president. Read Solnet. <laughs> <laughs> um Jesse, what have you brought in? Um,
2: not n- sorry, this is, is not relevant in the same way. Um, no, I, I
0: my book is totally irrelevant, <laughs>
2: so don't worry. Um, I had this recommended to me by my editor, and I'm enormously grateful that he did. Um, it's a book by Shirley Hazard called The Transit of Venus. Um, and I think it's like an extraordinary book, and it's it was published in the mid '90s. Um, I think, yes. She just died, didn't she? She did, she did, very recently. Oh no, 1980. It was first published in 1980. There we go. I thought I thought 95 sounded a bit late. Um, uh, yeah, she died recently. It's an extraordinary book and I, I, I don't really understand why it's not kind of more widely read. Like it's, I think that I've, uh, for a long time I've been a bit sort of down on the literary novel. Um, but this has really kind of brought it back to me that it, it can be a wonderful form. It's very unashamedly literary literary um a very very writerly book her prose is extraordinarily beautiful and it's also um really heartfelt and there's it's not clever for the sake of being clever it's just kind of it's quite kind of an, an honestly intelligent um powerfully felt novel um quite a straightforward novel in lots of ways but but beautiful and i really really recommend it mm.
0: I I've seen a few people talking about that novel recently maybe because maybe because she just died but um, Yeah I think it's one of those
2: books that when you start talking about it it turns out that that you, I sort of felt like nobody had heard of it um but then now I it kind of yeah I've seen a lot of references to it and w- when I mention it to people a lot of people kind of are hugely enthusiastic about it and about about her writing in general um I've never heard of her and i will read her now yeah well i mean do yeah i mean she yeah so she was she's australian and i don't know if that is kind of that sort of distance is part is part of it but um yeah it's, it's an extraordinary book cool
0: um yes my book is not pertinent at all so um, <laughs> <laughs> um but i did read some really great books over christmas uh i love the break because i get to just read what i want rather than what i have to um and uh I felt very lucky to be able to do that. The, my favourite book that I read, um, by far, actually, was My Name is Lucy Barton by Elizabeth Strout. And um, Strout, you know, this is not an undiscovered writer. She's somewhat of a literary darling. She won the Pulitzer Prize for a book called *Olive of Kittredge, um, which later became a series. My Name is Lucy Barton, I think, was shortlisted for the booker this year or something like that. Um,
1: Longlisted, I think.
0: Oh, OK, cool. Um, but this is the first time I've come to her work and it really knocked me back. It really sort of affectedly, effectively, affected me deeply to my core. Um, it's a very short novel about a writer living in New York who gets sick and has to spend a long time in the hospital. And one day her mother, who she hasn't seen for years, shows up by her bedside and they spend a few days, um, just by each other's side, speaking to each other after not having spoken for years. Um... And, you know, we were talking about economy earlier uh, with you, Jesse, and I think that is a word to describe this novel here. Every word seems to be important um, and so carefully chosen. And, you know, there's just so much emotional truth at the heart of this and sadness. um, And it's really, really affecting. And I I would really, really recommend it. Um, So... Uh, Also, just a little bit other thing I want to... Sorry, I'm making like seven recommendations today, but there's a really good interview in the New York Times with Obama about um, his reading habits, which made me happy. Yes, tweeted it the other day. Yeah, Yeah. and did you see that he went to lunch with the five novelists that he loves. Um And one of them is Dave Eggers.
1: Oh, no. <laughs> what the fuck? That is so depressing. I know. So, but uh, <laughs> we hate Dave Eggers on this podcast. We really hate Dave Eggers. I know. I should... <laughs>
0: <laughs> this is all based on me reading like two chapters of a heartbreaking no book listen i read genius. the whole fucking book
1: okay. and it was an absolute <laughs> trial and he i no no oh obama well, i he know can't, i know not, not everyone's perfect, also right? he no. likes colson whitehead and zadie smith yeah too, so it's so okay fine
0: yeah so but anyway it's it's great and it made me hopeful that the president likes books even though the incoming president does not like I books. Doubt likes books. But anyway, okay. So that's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much, Jesse, for coming in, Jesse Greengrass, um, and to Eddie Knight for production and music. Literary Friction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and on NTS.live. Um, we also have a Facebook page, we have Twitter, we have Instagram. You know, like us, us, follow us, chat to us if you'd like. Um, We'll be back next month. And until then, I'm Carrie Plitt with Octavia Bright, and this is Literary Friction.